Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Super excited to jump in as we continue in the fifth Sunday of Epiphany. And whether you are still processing this last week or trying to prepare for the next one, um, I hope that wherever you are listening to this, you'll be able to just take a pause for yourself. Even if you completely zone out that you have these minutes, um, just to create some space for something outside of the norm, the pace um, of your week. So we'll jump in here to the text and just kind of continue on our path of what is Epiphany revealing to us. So this week's text comes from Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. It says, Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of the Lord, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. So that bit they began to sing. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed and at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who partnered with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. So we get this interesting text that I've heard several times throughout my life, um, always, you know, holding one particular meaning and we at Mission Hills try to break things open a little bit um, to try and stand at a different spot in the story and see what might be revealed to us from a new perspective. And I find it so fascinating that Luke is the only text that we get this particular story as the calling of the first disciples. It holds some very uncanny similarity to a post-resurrection story that's in John 21, where the risen Jesus, standing on the shore, instructs the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. Doing so, they haul in, you know, this net full of fish. But John notes that the net was not torn. In Luke, when the disciples are first being called, put down these nets, they haul in a great many fish, and the nets break. So we get this interesting parallel, to say the least. Um, And this is just one of many kind of context points to bring in. And I think we've talked a little bit before, especially in last week, from the kind of economic perspective of what's going on in this story. Now there's a lot more to a day out fishing than simply pushing a boat out to sea or onto the water. The fishing economy here was not free market. The lake and all the fish in it belonged to Caesar, which means that people had to get a license to fish it. The license would have been sold by a local tax collector who very well could have been Matthew, 
who will come along quite soon. And fishing wasn't done alone either, meaning that the catch affected several families for the better or for the worst. And most often these groups were related. Um, We get these kind of kinship groups that were fishing out on the lake. James and John, Simon and Andrew, all, all of these kind of groups. And they get to this point, right? We have this whole kind of roller coaster of a story. First, Jesus is, you know, trying to find a different space um, because all the people are pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He gets in, he sits down, he teaches everybody. When he finishes, he turns to the fishermen in the boat, asking them to put their boat out into deeper water, instructs them to lower the nets down for a catch. Simon expresses that, you know, we've already tried everything we could overnight, um, but he does it anyway. And then they come away with so much that they have to actually get help to bring the catch in. Simon Peter has this whole response, um, saying, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Um, And then we get this language around amazement um, before we get this kind of decree from Jesus saying, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. And then they leave and they follow him. And this is the story of the first disciples from Luke's perspective. There's a lot going on in here. Um, I'm going to focus particularly on that moment uh, where Simon Peter says, you know, we've tried everything. Uh, Because I think we are in such a moment right now where it is very easy to look around and say, we have tried everything. We've been in this place. We've been in a very particular place with pandemic for the last two years. We are in a grave place in terms of climate change. And our future is quite unknown. Um, And there are a lot of variables with that. And as much as we hold hope, we also hold, I think, a similar feeling as Simon um, of this pit of despair, so to say. Uh, They looked around after a day's work. They saw no possibility of a hopeful future. They would have spent a great amount trying to get this license, and then to come away with no catch meant great cost to their families. There are all these very practical needs, as well as this kind of future-oriented momentum that gets going during this story. And so I think it's just interesting to kind of focus in on this moment because I think it's relatable in many ways, even though we see that we don't always have to draw these perfect parallels. Um, But as we've spoken about uh, the course of epiphany, what is being revealed, Um, in this story, I think, can help us uncover some things that will hopefully help us with our own momentum towards an unknown future. So a professor of mine, uh, Dr. Cody Sanders, brings really interesting language uh, to emotions, and he speaks of the difference between apocalyptic emotions and trans-imminent emotions. Apocalyptic emotions are that of sadness, anger, and fear. And this is not to demonize these emotions. I know there's quite a bit wrapped up in this language of apocalypse, but remember, apocalypsis means laying bare, 
making naked, disclosure of truth. There's nothing inherently wrong with these emotions. In fact, they show up all over the biblical text. And we've spoken before that even fear has quite a lot to tell us. Our emotions hold incredible wisdom, but sometimes we're afraid of even admitting what I call the messy emotions. I prefer that over negative, as I don't think that any emotion is bad. The danger is when we become consumed by one or multiple of these emotions. That is when it is difficult to see any possible way out. We spiral into helplessness, resentment, despair, or in my opinion, the worst, apathy. The extremes of these emotions show up in manifestations of mental health concerns such as depression or anxiety. And we know that there are both biological and environmental factors for how emotional and mental health concerns develop. So how do we make space for these emotions without being paralyzed by them? And so the other side of emotions that my professor lifts up is this idea of trans-imminent emotions. And he makes it very clear that you don't see these emotional experiences as antidotes to the above apocalyptic emotions. He calls them trans-imminent because he sees them serving both the function of transcendence, opening us up to the world beyond our individual selves, even to an ultimate context or God, as well as imminent, or helping us to relate differently to the human and more than human world that is immediately present to us in our context or environment. And so if we allow ourselves to still hold space for fear, anger, sadness, but we also allow ourselves to be caught up by the trans-imminent emotions, we find ourselves moving through those difficult messy emotions towards hopeful change. And so he offers three emotions or feelings, um, if you differentiate between the two, as these trans-imminent emotions. And these are wonder, grief, and gratitude. And as I move through each, how each is a trans-imminent emotion, I'll also share where I see this emotion show up in the disciple story. So the first is that of wonder. Wonder allows us to suspend our usual way of dealing with things, the habitual way of looking at the world. We've talked about this multiple times throughout our journey with Epiphany. Whether it's suspending our question of, did Jesus really make this miracle occur? Or any other multitude of scientific reasoning. It allows us to put that aside and look deeper into the meaning of this story. For the disciples, it did the same. Wonder of who this person Jesus was allowed them to move forward into new versions of themselves as well. Wonder keeps us from losing hope. And here's a super simple example, right? Sometimes I get stuck on my Sudoku puzzles, and instead of giving up, I change my tactic. I try to see from a new angle. We've done this perpetually throughout the pandemic. Wonder is kind of this linchpin, right? That holds everything together, that keeps us focused on the what might be. It also lures us into a creative connection to our environment, as Dr. Sanders says. 
we have found incredible new ways to pivot, to relate to one another, even if they are difficult to adjust to, right? Zoom, while it can be legitimately exhausting, has created connections that will hopefully last far beyond when Zoom is necessary. I think wonder is what we try our best to come back to. And remember, it can exist at the same time as all of these other emotions. And it can exist at the same time as grief. In fact, I think sometimes they are hand in hand. And I can talk for years about grief. Um, That is pretty much where my training now lies. And I'll summarize in saying that even though the disciples left everything, I don't think that means they didn't grieve. In some of the calling of the disciples, we read things like they didn't get to say goodbye to their families or even grab an extra coat. Maybe this is exaggeration, maybe not. But moral of the story, regardless of what they're able to do before they left with Jesus, is that the grief would continue to go with them. And I think that Jesus would encourage them to live into it and express it in probably a healthy way. Grief is in our bodies, and it is part of being human. Grief is considered a transimminent emotion because for all of the pain that grief may feel like, grief is actually movement, when we allow ourselves to feel it. In grief, we do not move past the pain, trying to bypass the experience. Instead, we move with it and through it, allowing it to change us because it does. We can't change the fact that it changes us. We have to allow grief to be part of the story because grief is as much as who, of who we are as love is. For me, they are two sides of the same coin in many instances. And in terms of the disciples, they had much to grieve. Separation from loved ones, separation from their previous identities, Grief isn't about, always about someone dying, although they experience that kind of grief later on too. In order to make it possible for them to move into their new identities as disciples, they had to reckon with grief and move with it. I love that there is plenty of biblical and cultural resource of lament that is incredibly prevalent in the Jewish tradition. In fact, I think many of Jesus's time were may be better equipped for creating space for grief and seeing God as part of the process, not afraid of it, as sometimes the Western Christian perspective may lead us to believe. I absolutely see grief as a connection, a possible connection point with the divine. Often, if your theology is structured on certain things like God providing a cure or you know, always answering prayer in a certain way. Grief usually forces you to reckon with that too. Um, And I think it often pushes us to a greater, more in-depth, more expansive view of God than maybe we were left with before. So I leave that part with you. But this movement within grief, I think, also makes room for gratitude. 
Diana Butler Bass says, gratitude is an emotional ex- response to the surprise of our very existence. It counters the lack of gratitude, the dissatisf- dissatisfaction ingrained in our economic system that has poured over into our social system. It focuses outwardly and pushes us towards an abundance mindset. I think gratitude is maybe a little more self-explanatory, but I love that idea. The surprise of our very existence is a reminder that we are such a gift to one another and I think often to ourselves as well. Now let's deal with Simon Peter's reaction because on the surface, it doesn't necessarily spell out gratitude. And so I think from my perspective, and I could very well be wrong, and I'd love to hear other perspectives on how you respond to this part of the story, that Simon Peter might be an example of what it looks like to be consumed by the apocalyptic emotions of anger, fear, sadness. I think his reaction is one of shame, perhaps consumed by that feeling that his fear or doubt had trapped him completely, but I think his actions actually betray him. He still held some glimmer of hope, some glimmer of wonder, since just a few lines before, he listens to Jesus' request to try again, even if he couldn't fully employ wonder in that moment. We also get interesting clue in the words that are used. Um, this is the first time in Luke's gospel that the word sin, hamartalos, is used. Edward Schweizer notes that hamartalos means missing the mark Not sin as moral failure, but sin perhaps as distance from God. And I wonder if we can consider that when Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid, that he more specifically meant, don't let fear consume you. Especially don't let fear consume you to the point that you can't engage in wonder and grief and gratitude, that you can't engage in forward moving motion. Um, Don't let fear consume you and prevent you from engaging in restorative justice. Don't let fear consume you, fill in the blank. So then we get a picture of what it means to leave and follow Jesus. I think there's a really interesting point that I came across um, in a commentary this week that Jesus's continual play on words from um, the Old Testament scriptures can actually shows up again um, in a way that Jeremiah, Amos, and Habakkuk, this line of fishing for people refers not to God's salvation, but actually to God's judgment. The unrighteous and unjust are caught up and pulled by hooks and nets. But Jesus is using this reference apparently not to continue this mode of judgmental language. Instead, he flips the script. This time they will be catching people so they might live. Or at least that is how the puzzle pieces of what Jesus has done so far and what he is doing here and what he will continue to do seems to say. Last week, we kind of deal with the question of 
what does it mean um, to engage in an expansive way, not an exclusive way? It is a challenge uh, with the question of who we are going to love and serve, even those that we might ourselves find difficult. And he's employing his own Jewish scriptures to make the point to his fellow Jews that God's grace and love is not limited. So what are they catching people for? I don't think Jesus is suggesting catching people against their will, as they probably were doing to the fish. But we see throughout Jesus' ministry that there is option and opportunity for those around him to participate according to their own will. I think it's actually really interesting to track throughout the story how consent is uh, kind of projected. Uh, Sometimes we get a line that just says Jesus walked into the boat, and then the next line we get Jesus is asking permission um, if Simon will bring the boat out into water. So I just think that as an aside is quite fascinating. But anyway, back to the disciples, right? They're leaving behind all these things. They're experiencing wonder, grief, gratitude. And they also are leaving their livelihood behind. Their means is deactivated. They're no longer participating in the established economic system. Instead, they're stepping with all these emotions to follow Jesus. Sometimes as we look around at our present reality and our possible future, it may feel impossible to keep up the energy. Um, I, I know for myself and I know for many listening, um, there's a level of exhaustion that is very true and continues to remain. However, I do think that focusing on a lens of these transeminent emotions may give us more leeway to honor where we are and still hold hope for where we're going. On Sunday, I think it might be interesting to explore that notion of consent and surrender as we explore faith. What do we need to let ourselves be caught up by? How might you see wonder, grief, and gratitude? Just taking the front seat of the same car with anger, fear, and sadness. How do we avoid being consumed by the latter? And we could also speak more specifically of each of the transeminent emotions. With wonder, what feels like a gift in my life? How are these gifts moving me towards moving forward? Um, What losses do I need to be more intentional about mourning and lamenting? Who can share with me in this work? And what is evoking um, my sense of awe or curiosity or interest in the world around me? How are these experiencing experiences luring me out of myself and into an engagement with the wider world? We're moving into a future unknown, continually complicated by difficult probabilities um, and, and things that pop up, things that come out of the blue. We can't get away from that reality. Um, But what we can do is to engage what we know is true. What is true about this community, what is true about ourselves. Um, And I think some of the things that we can name as truths about the divine, things that bring us back 
to being rooted in love and seeking justice and expressing grace. All these things I see happening already within our community and as part of the hope that I hold on to as well. Um, And I want this to be a continued conversation as we think about the future. How do we both create space for rest while also holding hope that things can still change? So I'm excited to share the space with y'all for conversation. Again, things might look a little bit different in the service on Sunday, um, but at the same time, you know, the most important thing as always is the collective wisdom that shows up through each of you um, that get to come and, and join us for that time. So we'll close as we always do. As we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Amen. Amen.